Hey folks, I'm Jason. Welcome to Filmography Club. So listen, I've got some explaining to do. A couple of explanations, actually. First, I know the conceit of the show is that we look at one filmmaker per season, and I've already gone off-road with that. Here's the thing. I had a filmmaker in mind for season two who had six movies done, and I thought that that would make for a solid season. Uh, then I watched all of those movies over about a week or two, and I realized that I just don't have much of anything to say about those movies. Uh, I'm not going to talk about who the filmmaker was. I'm not looking to drag anyone's career. They, they're a fine filmmaker. It's just not really for me. They, these movies weren't necessarily bad, but they weren't great or memorable to me. And I realized that I would just be bored out of my mind this entire season. So I abandoned that plan and I thought, you know, I love Jeremy Saulnier's movies and he's only got a few under his belt so far. So I thought, let's do those movies and we'll pad out the season with the Our Favorite Movies episodes, two of which are already streaming and ready for your ear holes everywhere fine podcasts are available. And that brings me to the second explanation. Jeremy Saulnier has so far directed four films, and yet we're only doing episodes for three of those. Now, why? Simply put, his first feature, it's called Murder Party, it was released a good six or seven years before his second film, and that's Blue Ruin, the subject of today's episode. So, I'm blowing the conceit of Filmography Club in a second way this season, and here's why we'll be skipping Murder Party. Two reasons why. One, I don't have a whole lot to say about it, and two, and this is the important one, it feels like the work of a completely different filmmaker. It has almost nothing in common with the latest three. It feels like a footnote in a way, like it's not truly a part of the Saunier canon. Now, this isn't meant as an insult to the film or to the cast and crew, but it does feel like a higher level student film to me. It's worth a watch as a curiosity if you're a real Saunier fan. It's on Netflix right now, along with the rest of his work that we'll be discussing this season. And it's a quick 79 minutes. So if you're a completist and you have to see all of a filmmaker's work, I encourage you to check it out. But I think I just said about all I have to say about Murder Party. So we've covered it for the season. There's that. All right. My guest today is Zach Hall. Zach is the programming and education coordinator and in-house media producer at the Belcourt Theater, that's here in Nashville, where he programs midnight movies and a variety of repertory and first-run features. He's also responsible for editing all of the original trailers and promotional spots for the theater. As a freelance editor and video artist, he cuts trailers for the Criterion Channel and Janus Films, as well as creating music videos and experimental pieces. Zach seems like a good guy. We met mere seconds before we started the conversation that you're about to hear. He's definitely a movie guy, very knowledgeable. I enjoyed our talk, and I think you will too. So enough foreplay, let's get into it. This is my talk with Zach Hall about 2013's revenge thriller, Blue Ruin. All right, I am here with Zach Hall. Zach, how are you? Doing pretty well. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, trying to stay sane. <laughs> yeah, it's going all right. I don't know. I thought I thought we were almost to the end of it. It doesn't seem like we are just yet. Yeah, it doesn't look like people. I, I had trust that America was going to do the right thing here early on in the pandemic. <laughs> and I kind of waited a little while because I wanted to do the podcast in the studio. I was going to wait until we could actually be in a room together. And yeah, yeah. You know, there's no substitute for that, but... Now it's becoming painfully obvious that America is not going to do the right thing. <laughs> so, so here we are via Zoom. Yeah, this is a good movie to be uh, discussing during this. I think there's a lot of I don't know. It it fit it fits the tone of my apocalypse really well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Today we're talking about Blue Ruin. It's the second film by Jeremy Saulnier. The idea behind this podcast was that I'm going to talk about an entire filmography of a filmmaker. But I have to say, Murder Party 
his first film is so far removed from everything else that came after it that I may I may do a catch-all at the end, perhaps, and talk about some of the other stuff that these guys have been up to, because it's hard to talk about Jeremy Saulnier without talking about Macon Blair. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. What this movie is about when people ask me, and by the way, this is going to be a spoilery conversation. If you've not seen Blue Ruin and you're listening to this, go to Netflix right now, queue it up. It's only an hour and a half. When people ask me what this movie's about, I just say revenge because a big part of enjoying this film is just watching it not really knowing what it's about and seeing it unfold and you just having to kind of put together the context clues. It's not a very complicated plot at all. It's just a standard revenge thriller. Yeah. Uh, at least it sounds like it if I were to explain <laughs> it to you, but the way it's presented is not at all standard. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I love this movie. I think Jeremy Saulnier has really tapped into something. He's got a, a style that you can see where he takes things here and there from other filmmakers, but he, he definitely makes it his own. I'm a big, big fan I'm looking forward to what what he and Macon Blair are going to deliver to us later on. But what about you, Zach? What's your experience with this film? I kind of held out on watching this. I, I we showed it at Belcourt where I work. I do programming and stuff there. We showed it there, and I somehow missed it on its initial run, probably because I was working, uh, and and found it a little bit later, and it just blew my socks off. You know, it's kind of it's kind of an interesting film because it does hit all of those sort of indie art film sort of notes to it, but it has the this genre backing that those types of films don't. So it, it kind of came across, came to me at a time when I was really trying to kind of struggling and with skating this line between, you know, the art house film greats and my love of just sort of cheesy, crazy genre stuff. Uh, and it feels like it sort of melds both of those worlds so incredibly well. And and especially on a rewatch, after having seen, you know, sort of the rest of his oeuvre and see, seeking it out or whatever, seems to me like this sort of general statement that his career changing after, you know, Murder Party or whatever, it's this like reinvention. And while reinventing himself, I think he really helped to sort of reinvent a lot of the ways that these kinds of thrillers can operate and should operate and really set the bar high with this and then green room for sure. Yeah, absolutely. The budget on this was a uh, notoriously low 42. Yeah. $420,000 for the budget made its money back then. Some little yeah. over double that watching the movie. I never once thought to myself, this feels like a really cheap movie. No, it, it, never. it doesn't feel cheap at all. That's because he, I believe Jeremy Saulnier, who both wrote and directed this movie and was the cinematographer, he wrote it knowing full well what his limitations were financially. He did this stuff on the cheap. For example, the Blue Ruin, the titular Blue Ruin, the, the car, the Bonneville, mm-hmm. that was his parents' old car. And he had he had the art department old it up, make it rusted and, and, and you know look, yeah. made it look weathered. A big set piece, if you can call it that, a big sequence anyway in the film takes place at his real life parents house where he turns on the water faucet and all that. Yeah. So the whole thing was, uh, it's, it's got this spirit when you look at the behind the scenes stuff, Hey, we can do this together, guys. We're all in this together. Let's go out and let's make a movie. And it's like this scrappy group of people going out and trying to make a movie. He and Macon Blair, this was, I guess I should back up and explain who Macon Blair is. He stars in the film. He's Dwight and Macon Blair and Jeremy Saulnier are in real life. Best friends have been since they were children, grew up together, making films together. And they made Murder Party six, seven years prior. Mixed results. 
on Murder Party. You know, I'm, I'm rooting for that movie, but it's nothing that I want to revisit, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I feel like it was a one and done for me as well. I, I enjoy that kind of sort of horror comedy vibe. But if you're going in expecting, you know, some some genetics of Blue Ruin or Green Room, it's it's a completely different beast. It is. And that may have been what kind of turned me off to that movie knowing what this guy can do and then seeing what he did over here, it almost <laughs> felt, I don't want to say half-assed. I'm not trying to insult the cast or crew or the film itself. It's a scrappy little picture. It feels like a really well done student film, maybe. I hope that doesn't sound insulting. I, I don't mean it that way, but this is worlds removed. Yeah. He said the reason he wanted to do that, and I think this is really interesting. The reason he wanted to do a film like Murder Party just first out of the gate was genre films are what we're selling at that point. So horror films, films, you could have a low budget, you could shoot on the cheap, and you could make just messy and dumb and sell it. And he did. So in a way that worked. But in those ensuing years where he was working like in advertising and doing all this stuff and shooting other friends films, I think he for sure matured and found his voice. But uh, there is very little outside of maybe the like, the the sort of jet black humor that I think is sort of interjected in in a lot of his later films. Like aside from that, I don't feel like there's much in that murder party movie that really uh, foretells uh, what he will become. It felt like the work of a completely different filmmaker to me. Yeah, you've got these guys, lifelong buddies. They made Murder Party. They were expecting their careers to really start up in earnest after that. It didn't happen. They basically go back to their day jobs. Then they go to Kickstarter. I know Jeremy Saunier and his wife put up tons of money, like all their savings. They put everything they had. They bet it on black. And uh, it, it worked out for them, thankfully, because, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic movie. And it doesn't once feel like it has a budget of less than half a million dollars to me at all. A big part of that has to do with just the way the the way Jeremy Saunier wrote this thing. He wrote it to cater to exactly what he knew that he had access to. And he didn't mind working his lead actor really, really hard because they were best friends. So once they once they hit those times, like, okay, we've worked X number of hours, the crew has got to go home now. And we still got stuff that we need to do. So they can work his buddy like that. The opening sequence I thought was fantastic. And it was originally meant to be much longer, like a one, like a really long one take in a, that took place in a McMansion. I'm glad that it didn't go that route, and I'm glad that we got the really quick version of it, but the, the film opens up. There's a guy taking a bath in a, looks like a nice house, and he thinks that he hears something moving around outside, and you're thinking, oh no, someone's breaking into the guy's house. You quickly realize, no, he broke into these people's house, and he's taking a bath in there, and he jumps out a window and, and, and makes his escape. The opening 20 minutes of this movie, much like There Will Be Blood, almost a silent movie. There's very few words spoken, just a, a few sentences is from the police officer. I think he asks someone if they sell stamps and that's that's pretty much it for the opening 20 minutes. And again, the, the fun of this film is watching it unfold and figuring out what, what exactly is going on. And the look on Macon Blair's face or Dwight when the police officer tells him that, quote, they're letting him out. They're, he's going to be released. That sold it. I was in. I feel like a lot of the success of this movie is based on like Macon Blair's eye acting. Dwight says so little throughout the first half of this film, but his eyes say so much. I feel like that's that's the mark of a, a really excellent actor who can who can really get those complex emotions across without the sort of words or specifics 
Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, there's so many of those little shots of his just reactions to, to like the police officer and then to his sister later on and things like that, where it's just like, oh man, this guy has so much complexity for saying so little. And, and Dwight's a character that you want to root for. He's gentle and sweet, d- despite, uh, <laughs> despite the, the grisly and horrifying sudden v- uh, bursts of violence that are in this movie. And it's graphic. It's kind of become Jeremy Saunier's uh, calling card in a way. The the graphic vi- nature of the violence that yeah. he presents, it's so jarring. I will say, like, I think he is second only to, like, the Raid movies or something in terms of knife violence and the sort of visceral, violent, up-close, just sudden bursts of bone crunching skin crawling violence i remember seeing a green room in a theater full of people and there's a moment in there where a character gets you know sort of cut up a little bit and everyone in the theater just collectively at once goes (laughs) was it the door scene or the guy lying on his back scene on the back yeah oh yeah 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 Yeah, both of those both of those scenes just super grisly stuff. The film is about revenge. The short version is that this guy about, I think, 10 years prior, I think that number is thrown around in the movie at some point, his parents are murdered and the guy who did it has just been let out of prison and he wants revenge. And where most revenge films, the revenge is shown in act three. Usually it's the climax of the film. He gets his revenge right there in act one. I guess we can call it act two, perhaps. Once once people start speaking, he gets his revenge and this movie really is about, well, what happens after that? The guy got his revenge I mean, in real life, credits don't roll after that. So now what? Now you have to live with the consequences of having murdered a guy. Maybe it was righteous morally, but well, maybe not. It's complicated, but that's the long and short of the film. One of the things I think that is interesting is where, like, I think a lot of these films would take it would be sort of the trauma of of having killed someone or something. And what Saulnier focuses on instead is just sort of the mundanity that follows it. And then there is the sudden realization that, no, this isn't the end. But it's 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 interesting because at no point, I think, does Dwight ever act like he feels any shame or guilt. I think he's just shocked by the circumstances that <laughs> it's not the movie's not just over. He doesn't seem to regret what he does at yeah, all. Exactly. And when it's when it's go time, he really doesn't hesitate, as in act three. Right. <laughs> the phone scene. He absolutely does not hesitate until he does. And his buddy, uh, what was his name? Ben? Ben, yeah. No, uh, no speeches. Uh, this is personal for you. Don't, yep. no, no speech. <laughs> you point the gun, you shoot the gun. Yeah. There's your setup. That's what the movie is about. Wonderful cast. We've got Macon Blair uh, as Dwight Evans. Got Amy Hargreaves. A lot of these people, I, in fact, I don't know any of these people except for Macon Blair and Eve Plum, who I, I did mm-hmm. not know. Jan Brady is in this movie. Very briefly. Yeah, she's uh, Chris uh, Cleland. Yeah, is that how you pronounce it? Cleveland? Okay. So if you want to see Jan Brady wield a Tech Nine, this is the movie (laughs) for you, however briefly. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! Yeah, so what we have here is a sort of it's an almost Hatfield McCoy type situation yeah. here with the Evans and the and the Clelands. Yeah, this movie just really goes into vengeance. Is it worth it? Where does it stop? It's 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 basically a it's a feedback loop where everyone's constantly trying to get back at one another and just sort of the it's just damning. It's it it everyone involved is doomed un- until yeah. somebody breaks that cycle, which is done at the end with a, a little bit of an on the nose moment with the, the dropping yeah. of the gun, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> the, the, the movie earned that. If, if you ask me, the movie moves at a nice, uh, it's a nice slow burn. It's in no way boring. It's a brisk, 
well, I don't know about brisk. It's 90 minutes. Now, it doesn't feel like a chore, but it's 90 of the most intense minutes I've ever seen put to film. One of the yeah, few movies that rivals it is his next film, Green Room. Right, right. Yeah, it never lets up. You feel like you're there the entire time through all the gaps that normal action movies would pull you out of. But this one somehow feels like it moves at 10 times the pace just because you're on the edge of your seat the entire time. I could not wait to see what happened next. That's the scene, especially at the beginning when he's in the parking lot, when he pulls up in the Bonneville at the place where he knows Wade and the Clelands are. Ugh, it just... What in the world is going to happen here? And he just, ah, it's, <laughs> it's fantastic. He's, he's great at building suspense. The guy watched his Hitchcock. He did watch his Hitchcock because he uses all these wonderful close-ups to sort of build that suspense. That's a thing that I think gets lost in a lot of action movies. Of course, like Edgar Wright's good with close-ups too. But what I describe this movie's sort of stylistic choices as is it feels like a really drugged up, tooling up sequence from like an 80s action movie where it's just like, you just did that, but it was like literally getting gas, learning how to shoot a gun. You know, it's not a montage, you know, in the traditional... It's not a Schwarzenegger film or whatever, but it has all of those elements of this sort of, you know, this this uh, ritualizing of violence going on in it. But it's done at, a, at such a weird pace, but it moves so quickly because each shot is so incredibly thought out and necessary. There's like no fat on, on the bone on this... <laughs> Yeah, and it really helped that the guy that wrote and directed it was also the cinematographer. He could just, he knew exactly what he was looking for. He knew what the marks were. He didn't really have to waste time or spend time, rather, explaining it to his DP. It was all just in his head. So pretty much everybody in this movie was cast pretty much perfectly. I really liked the guy that played Teddy, I believe that character's name is, the brother yeah. who was in the trunk. That guy did great. Everybody looked exactly like they ought to look. Yeah, none of them look like movie stars either, which just no. adds to the sort of realistic grind of it all. Uh, everyone wears their character on their face, I think, in a way that that you don't really get in any of in many Hollywood movies. Yeah, one thing that accounted for that six, seven-year gap between his first movie, Murder Party, and this one, he said he also was sort of kind of waiting for cameras to get better and cheaper. <laughs> and they, they finally did. I mean, th this movie looks fantastic. You look at the the look of Murder Party is, I mean, it it's, looks... It's SD, it's kind of trashy, but... I also heard in an interview, he was like, it was a really good feeling to have had enough experience using other people's cameras on their movies and to have learned them well enough that when I could finally afford to shoot my own, I didn't have that as an excuse. Well, we couldn't get this. Is, these are the cameras we had to have. You know, he, he got the camera he wanted and it looked the way he wanted. And that's a big barrier I know for a lot of filmmakers is you want to pour your heart and soul into something, but you want to make sure that it looks the way you want it to look right right so i know i know for one many people in my filmmaking sphere at that time you know because like this is right when i sort of well okay i graduated in like 2004 which was like or sorry 2007 when all this uh digital technology was coming out but not everything was hd yet and all this stuff and so independent film there for a little bit just looked like garbage uh and it's it's, it's intimidating to try and put your heart and soul into something and not have it look the way you want it to and then to just have to always throw out that excuse of well it would have looked better if we could have afforded better cameras or lenses or whatever so i think it's a smart move of him to wait <laughs> 
<laughs> the movie just looks fantastic. It's a very dark looking film. It, the lighting is just, I don't want to say perfect because what is perfect? I can't, I'm still not quite sure what I'm supposed to make of all the blue in the film. Pretty much every shot has something in it that's distinctly blue. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's in the, it's in the title of the film. I think that's probably important. I don't, you know, with a lot of this stuff, I, I get a little worn out just uh, addressing color schemes in movies because I feel like it's, you know, it's obviously a choice. And if you get into the sort of psychological impact of like blue, these cooler colors, that sort of thing, it could very easily, you know, just be this very like, well, he wanted it to look kind of sad and depressing and dingy. And that's why everything's blue. But I think he's also, there's also this weird class thing going on in this film. And this is probably a stretch that's probably, you know, not going to pan out for me when I start talking about it. But, <laughs> you know, so, so as soon as he gets all cleaned up, He's he's been in this like didn't you know gross white shirt with sort of purity. He gets he gets a bunch of red on him when he murders the dude, and he goes to clean up, and he immediately puts on khakis and a blue collar shirt, and he trims his hair, and goes and visits his sister, who's this fairly well-to-do person who who tells him, okay, like, listen, you still have twenty twenty one hundred dollars for your or whatever it was. The inheritance is still here. But this is a guy that has choose to live, I think, below his class. And he is taking out his trauma, his like PTSD or whatever, through revenge on this really poor family, I would imagine, just from the looks of it and from, you know, the fact that they all live together in that kind of small house uh, there at the end. So it's it's interesting because he's kind of, he's a middle class kid, it looks like. So I think there's something about this, like, you know, with these colors, these uh, sort of, I don't know. I, I don't think they're reflecting the sort of weird, you know, s- subtle class tension that's going on there. But I did think it was really funny that he immediately like took off his bloody white shirt and put on khakis and a, and a, and a blue collar. And then we get to see him limp around with an arrow in his leg. And that's one of the funniest images I've seen <laughs> is this just sort of dorky guy who can't get a break getting shot in the leg with (laughs) an arrow. Despite the subject matter of the film and the grim way in which it's presented, there's a bit of humor in the movie that I missed the first time I watched it. The second time I started catching little things here and there that wasn't, the movie wasn't laughing at itself, but it was just enough to remind you, hey, it's okay. This is a movie. (laughs) We've got a story to tell here. Don't, (laughs) don't feel bad. We're We're getting there. The the arrow, the wound is a perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you could you could replace the score with like the Rambo score and that scene would play out so incredibly differently. Uh, yeah. I, I just love that absolutely every action trope is turned on its head and sort of, I mean, I, I think at the root of this, there's this also, also this underlying thing going on that like, you know, reality and movies are very different. I think using genre to sort of reflect on genre, but also to talk about the ways in which we are sort of set up to see certain scenarios. So this revenge plot is like every action movie. And we as viewers take a lot of joy out of the action part of those movies, right? But what if you took all the action out and had it take up as much time as, say, like the exposition usually takes up in a normal Hollywood action movie? And you put someone who seemingly has seen a lot of action movies because he does all the things you're supposed to do in an action movie, right? Like he he does that trying to dig it out mm-hmm. and gives up on it. You Let's know, meet he, in a public place. Right, exactly. This thing out. Oh, totally. And he, you 
you've got his friend being like, oh, this is the A-team gun and, you know, things like that throughout the movie. So it's like taking, you know, an audience member and throwing them into this situation and saying, yeah, you do it. And absolutely nothing goes his way. And it is a constant source of like sort of the bleakest laughs I have (laughs) where it's just like, God, nothing goes right for this guy. And yeah. It's a a film that's so obsessed with the in-between moments that would just be a cut in a normal action movie that I think it's so much more interested in the the sort of reality of what a situation like this would look like for an average person. He's such a gentle soul, and yet he's the protagonist in a very grisly revenge thriller. So he fucks up a lot, uh, starting mid-murder. When he gets his revenge in that men's room, that's a grisly murder, by the way. Holy shit. Oh, man, yeah. Leaves the keys right there in the blood (laughs) next to the body so he winds up having to steal the limo that he just out of spite flattened the tire on i mean he just he he fucks up every step of the way almost and that whole scene is incredible too because he's it's this sort of cascade of fuck-ups because he like he hurts his hand you know stabbing the tire which is like a total action movie thing right you like make sure they can't chase you put out the tire but then what happens is he can't get his car to start now he's got a bleeding hand and has to drive a limousine away with a busted up tire <laughs> just absolutely <laughs> hilarious it's like cohen you know it's it would be a cohen brothers movie if it were played slightly different you yeah. know yeah i agree uh, but because it is so i think earnest in a way that humor is so melancholy <laughs> too because you kind of want this guy to stop making the wrong decisions, but he's just doing what, you know, the action movie told him to do. (laughs) He seems like a really sweet guy who just saw a few of those as a kid and like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do at this point, right? Yeah, and his justification when the kid, when he finds out the kid's in the back, the kid's like, well, he says like, Wade hurt hurt my parents. Yeah. Wade hurt my parents. And then the kid goes, I don't think he did. And then he realized, oh, this was, this was act one. I think that that sort of cascading misfortune is a total Coen Brothers thing. I think he does it really well here without it being too terribly in on the joke. There's the scene where he's talking with his sister in the diner or whatever. And there, and, and she's like, I'm glad he's dead. I'm glad you killed him. And the guy next in the ne- table next to him asks, stops him and asks, some for ketchup. In another movie, that would have been her, that actress's big moment where she's got tears streaming down her face and all this stuff starts spilling out. And then the real life just jumped in the middle of it and they have to just stop and give this guy ketchup because even though what seems like this huge momentous moment for those two has just happened, the real world is still going on. And this movie seems really preoccupied with that. It's like, yeah, Yeah. you've got shit going on, but the rest of the planet is still moving along just like it always has. I I think one of the other reasons that this movie is so effective and that it's so suspenseful is it routinely it routinely subverts genre expectations, obviously. You know, that's what I think it's taking on. But it is like aggressively doing the opposite of what you would expect next. Uh, And that's, I think, where a lot of the the tension comes from. And oddly enough, I'm seeing some Shane Black influence in there, too. Yeah. At least as far as screenwriting goes, as far as taking tropes from usually in a Shane Black movie, like a detective type story and Mm -hmm. just totally subverting it. This guy, Jeremy Saunier, of course. So Jeremy Saldier in this movie and in Green Room, he's really good about humanizing the villains. This could have been just Hillbilly Family. It's me up against the McCoys. One of them's got a limo business. I mean, that's not exactly upper class stuff, but they're not in the trailer park. 
these people do have feelings. They actually, even when you find out what actually happened and who killed whom years ago, you see their point of view. Even if it's redneck and criminal and murderous, I still kind of empathized with these people a little bit. At least they were making mistakes too. It wasn't just, these weren't mindless automatons just coming to kill him. The guy with the crossbow is a perfect example when the guy is firing the crossbow and then he man- Dwight manages to pick up the shotgun. The guy just says, no, fuck it, I'm leaving. Yeah. And, and runs away, which anybody would have done at that point, I think. But the great thing is he also comes back. You know, I, I think that's so funny. It's like, run away. That whole scene is just so frantic and, and out of control. And it's shot so well because it's it looks like night. It doesn't look like night in a movie. It looks like night. And it just... It's just such a mess. It's such chaos, that whole thing. It's it's like frantic rush. The guy runs away. Dwight just thinks, I have to chase him. That's what people do in movies, right? And he starts (laughs) chasing him, and the guy gets away from him out of his sight, and then he realizes, what in the world am I doing? No. (laughs) And he just comes running back, and he gets the hell out. It's great. Oh, I was going to say, so like with the family, I don't know that they are. I, I feel like there's a moment when he's sitting there in their house, like waiting for them to come home or whatever, if this isn't too spoilery. We can get into spoilers. I mean, so when he's set up all his barricades and he keeps like falling asleep accidentally, <laughs> but he's also like going through and looking at their photo albums and stuff like that. I feel like that's him trying to humanize them, right? Like it's him trying to come up with an excuse not to follow through with this or whatever. Right. Like he Seemingly. tells them, I've got a thousand reasons to end your family and yeah, I'm trying but- to find one good one to not. Well, I think that's that's a moment where the film is like trying. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's that other. It's that it's that constant subversion of expectations, right? We see that character seemingly softening to this family's plight or whatever. We see him just sort of being like, "Oh, they're just humans like us" or whatever. And we think that's what's going on. But the second he has the opportunity, he kills them. <laughs> like when they walk in. His plan, I guess, was to like, was his plan to like leave the message, they check the message, and then he kills that, shoots them all in the back? Or was his, was the message there so he, because he was planning on leaving in the morning or something? I took that as it was him sort of taking their temperature. I'm going to leave this message where I extend them an olive branch, and I specifically ask them to leave my sister and her family alone. And the moment he says that in the message, the guy says, no, that's why we're coming, you dumb son yeah, of a bitch. that's why we're going to Philly or, what, or Pittsburgh or whatever. <laughs> and he immediately kills that guy. The moment yeah. that guy says that, he's like, well, I have to kill this guy because he's going to come after my sister. Well, I think that was the thing. We like the only time we get to know the family at all, they say one thing and then do another, right? Like the brother. Yeah, Teddy in the trunk. Was just messing with them the entire time. And then and they're trashy people, man. Like they keep getting opportunities to get out of these things. And so I do think that like scene where where he is humanizing them or whatever, seemingly, there's this weird thing going on where it's like maybe he wasn't actually trying to do that. Maybe he was just wasting time and the audience is reading all of this like sort of empathy into it because that's what they do at this point in a movie. But the whole time he's just looking at them, waiting to kill them and piecing together that final reveal or whatever. That makes sense to me. (laughs) 
Or it just could be that Dwight hasn't thought this stuff through at all. And he's just moving on pure instinct or adrenaline or whatever it is. I mean, what else is he going to do? You may as well go into the lion's den and wait. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure that he thought this thing through. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of movies, of, of revenge movies that don't let the hero off the hook, right? Like, I don't necessarily want to see him die, but I do want to see them be a broken person because this cycle of revenge is just is just like fundamentally inhumane. I like I like the films of Anthony Mann a whole lot, and he always has these grand last moments of just trauma on the faces of people mm-hmm. who have finally gotten their revenge or who survived a great ordeal. It happens in a lot of movies, but I've been really obsessed with this sort of starting a film after the trauma, which is what this does. It's like, you start the film, he's out for revenge, he gets his revenge, and then the rest of the time, it's kind of like he's been cheated out of his ending, right? He's now having to live the credits of a movie he thought <laughs> would be over at that point. And so like that that ending is the only way it can end, obviously. Everyone's doomed, right? So so like I think that's interesting or whatever, but I, that reveal didn't really have that much of an effect on me because it's just sort of like, he's definitely going to go kill people now, right? Like, yeah, I don't know who else there is to kill, but but I guess he put the gun down and ran away. So maybe maybe he broke that cycle of violence. According to the, the director's commentary, that was exactly what that was intended to convey. He said, okay. in fact, right before it happened, he said, yeah, I was conflicted about this. And then the guy drops the gun. He says... You know, it's it's really on the nose, but I, I wanted to let the audience know. I wanted to tip my hand to them that this guy has broken the, the cycle. That's good. I just hope they don't have any extended family. I just love that they never involved the police in this. And Teddy says, oh, we just want to keep it in the house, you know, keep this in house, deal with it ourselves. And the only cop in the movie is the is the one who like is this very compassionate cop who comes to, you know, help out this poor traumatized guy. <laughs> living on the beach or whatever. And she knew who he was as well. Yeah. She was a very matronly character. I love these little, I love Ben, that character so much. I think he is at one point like the action hero that you want to see in one of these films. But at the same time, he's like clearly so traumatized from whatever he experienced. And they ask him, like, he asks, have you ever killed anyone? And he says two on purpose. And that's yeah, like that's, that's all we need. Yeah. <laughs> the guy probably did some friendly fire stuff or something. Yeah. I'm not sure, but he was he was uh, the character was supposed to have been a marine. Right. They, they edited out. They had to they had to cut a scene that showed him uh, with his bicep exposed, and he had a a fake mm-hmm. marine tattoo on him. But and that was based on one of Jeremy's uh, friends, right? I think that character was someone he grew up. I don't with, know. Maybe. Maybe. I, yeah. I thought I read that somewhere, but that might not be that line after after Ben shoots the guy and. Dwight just goes, his head, and goes, that's what bullets do. It's like <laughs> the most, I love it. I love. It was all business. It's like, come on, pick him up. I want to get him off my property. God, there's so much. And then, the, yeah, the fact that the, uh, the U.S. mail is slower than vengeance. <laughs> that, that card coming in at the end. At the very um, end. Yeah. Can we talk about the last line real fast? And then, let's talk. And then yeah, we'll... absolutely. Remind me what the last line was. Uh, oh man, where did I did I not write it down? Oh, the keys are in the car. Is the and he keeps repeating that over and over again as Williams right as Williams left. That one kind of flummoxed me because I was like, what did he? What is he saying? And I'd just be curious. What do you, What do you think is going on there? You know, I haven't read anything into it. I kind of took it at this guy is in shock. 
he's bleeding out. He's about to die. He knows it. And the thing that's on his mind, the last moment, the last thing that he had going was telling that kid where his car was. That's yeah. just how I took it. I didn't take it as having any kind of special significance, though. Yeah. I, though I, it I might love- be. I'm not the brightest guy. There, there may be something pretty obvious that I'm missing here. No, I feel like I feel like that's there as like a, a yeah a misdirect. I, I kind of love that it's there because it's just as mundane as the rest of his sort of journey, right? Like yeah. the postcards in the mail, the keys are in the car, whatever. You know, it's just it could have ended however, but he doesn't get his like grand last words. He doesn't even get to finish his speech. <laughs> that's kind of how I I, I, I took it. Uh, Jeremy Saulnier's thing seems to be, or one of them, one of his uh, maker's marks seems to be. Okay, you think that we're going to do this no we're gonna do the exact opposite here so yeah i kind of took it as yeah usually there's some kind of dramatic really cool last words and here this guy is just confused probably in shock he's bleeding out and he's just babbling maybe incoherently to no one in particular and i love that it's an action film where we don't see the climax we just yeah, the camera the cuts away the outside yeah we see it we see the we see the lights flashing or the the gun flashes from outside Something I did not notice on my initial viewing was that he did not kill that one lady that died. He killed one of them, the one with the Tech Nine, Jan mm-hmm. Brady. He killed her. Jan Brady accidentally killed her niece. Right. Yeah. It all happened super quick. It's grisly. It's it's grounded. It's dark. It's got bits of humor in there that you kind of have to look for, but they're there. there. There's influence from other filmmakers, but he's not knocking anyone off. I think this is the movie where Jeremy Saulnier found his voice. Looking forward to seeing what the guy does next. I looked it up. Uh, he's working on, well, I know Macon Blair is doing Toxic Avenger. That blew my mind, really writing and weird. directing. Yeah, writing and directing. So there's a return to murder party territory. Yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the one job he could get where murder party would, you know, uh, benefit. Oh, it's a it's a, in production. It's called Rebel Ridge, which is apparently exploring systemic American injustices through bone breaking action sequences, suspense, and dark humor. It's got Don Johnson and James Cromwell and John Boyega in it. So that doesn't sound timely at all. No, not at all. Not at all. You know, I I feel like I feel like Green Room is so ahead of its time in terms of the like joy of watching Nazis get murdered <laughs> that, that he's got his finger on the pulse of something. I just Yeah, he's a little ahead of the curve. Did you notice the film texture or the grain or the quality in the film uh, change throughout the movie? It seems like it started, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it seems like it started really bright, outdoorsy, beaches, ocean, blue skies, very crisp looking Mm -hmm. and as the film progressed things sort of degraded in a way is that me or it it was shot digitally so that that had to have been you know a uh something done in post something done on on purpose the one the the thing i did i mean i think he just wants it to get grungier and grungier and grungier as it goes and i think that opening scene it being bright and sunny and stuff this wonderful like contrast between the like really disheveled uh home you know homeless Macon Blair Dwight Dwight walking around this like sunny beach community this was initially supposed to be a beach bum comedy type movie and he changed it because there was already one of those in production so he's like well okay I guess we'll just do it like a thriller or something this genre but we'll keep the character 
we'll yeah, keep the keep character, the character that we came up with yeah. which was, I but thought that no was a brilliant a comedy <laughs> yeah it's no longer a comedy it is incredibly violent and upsetting and just downright depressing film but the other thing is like they finished the color grading and I don't I'm, I'm guessing they went back and regraded it and all that stuff but apparently they they finished it like a couple of days before it premiered at Cannes so wow so like they had they you know based on an interview they had basically a month from being accepted based on a rough cut without even having a picture lock being accepted to can to delivery so four weeks to mix sound color grade get a final cut get picture lock all that stuff so uh, who knows I, I I would imagine that was on purpose you know the grading that way so that it gets like dingier and dingier as you go along but mm-hmm. could also just be by nature of like rushing through it. Though sure. I would imagine they'd go fix that stuff if it weren't intentional. At great financial risk to himself and his family, and despite all of the uh, the hardship and the long journey between uh, from pre-murder party to releasing the film and showing it at Cannes and having it be you know, picked up and all the accolades, and it really started both of their careers in earnest, making Blair and Jeremy Saulnier. It's a uh, really time well spent. It was a gamble that paid off, and I'm uh, I'm really glad for him and I can't wait to see what what the guy does next. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite new filmmakers. Yeah, this is a guy to to keep your eye on for sure. He is, yeah. He's doing magnificent things. All right. I feel good. How, how about you? Yeah, I feel good. All right. All right, yeah. man. Thanks so much for joining me, Zach. I appreciate it. It was great to meet you. Maybe we can talk movies again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was fun. Absolutely. Thanks, man. All right. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. We'll be coming back to Jeremy Saulnier soon. We've got Green Room on the horizon and, of course, Hold the Dark. We'll be doing a handful of our favorite movies episodes this season, too. The pandemic is preventing us from doing any more of our commentary episodes, but you can still listen to our diehard commentary to hold you over until it's safe for humans to be in rooms together talking about movies. I want to thank Michael Leeds, Will Fox, Ross Warner, and, of course, my guest, Zach Hall. Filmography Club is produced right here in pestilence-ridden Nashville, Tennessee by the always hardworking folks that we own this town. I'm Jason Cavanis. This is Filmography Club. Thanks for listening.